Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. I'm Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. Today, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Dr. Jason Falvey. Jason, welcome. Thank you for having me. This is going to be great. Jason is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the School of Medicine in the Geriatrics Division at Yale University, and the research we're going to be talking about today, he and his colleagues conducted while he was a doctoral student in the physical therapy program at the University of Colorado. The title of the research that we're going to uh, discuss is Impaired Physical Performance Predicts Hospitalization Risk for Participants in the Program of All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly, or PACE. I'm going to give a brief summary for our listeners, Jason, and then we can talk about the study. Okay. This study is very interesting. It tested whether function, as measured by the short physical performance battery, which is referred to as the SPPB, can be used to identify participants in this PACE program who were at risk for all-cause hospitalization or potentially avoidable hospitalizations. The study involved just over a 1,000 participants who were in the PACE program in the Denver, Colorado area, and the data come from a linked electronic medical record data and hospitalization claims data. The investigators used regression models to evaluate the relationship between the SPPB scores and the probabilities of both all-cause hospitalization and potentially avoidable hospitalization. The investigators found that the unadjusted likelihood of all-cause and potentially avoidable hospitalization increased as greater physical performance impairment increased. Compared to participants with SPPB scores of greater than 8 out of 12, those with scores of less than 4 out of 12 had nearly double the unadjusted hazard for hospitalization. And when they um, did adjusted models, they found that uh, participants with lower than 4 out of 12 scores remained significantly more likely to be hospitalized. Let's begin by talking a little bit about the PACE program, because most listeners are probably not familiar with it. Uh, what is the PACE program, and why did you want to study this particular population? So really briefly, the PACE program is a, a model of community-based long-term care that started in the 90s, but really has become more and more popular, um, that serves a population of dual Medicare and Medicaid-eligible older adults, often with either cognitive impairments or significant activities of daily living impairment that makes them eligible for nursing home admission. Um, and this program really um, works to provide nursing home-level services in the community and allow people to age in place. And I think it's unique because it's a it's a bundled, capitated model, um, so there's a lot of ways to explore innovative ways to deliver care, and it's also a, a high-risk population that, that may be a place for PT to show value in, in a many different ways. 
It's really interesting to me because, as you mentioned, this is a type of program that we're seeing more of, which to me indicates there may be some real generalizability for what you found in this particular cohort. It was interesting to me, you focused on two types of hospitalization in your study, all-cause hospitalization and then potentially avoidable. Could you just briefly describe what you mean by potentially avoidable as compared to all-cause? So there's been some discussion in Medicare and Medicaid about how to really look more closely at hospitalizations and and understand which hospitalizations are for conditions that may be potentially avoidable. They, they kind of define that as ambulatory care-sensitive conditions, and they look at that for, for long-term care facilities as conditions that probably could have been, you know, responsive to outpatient care. So for long-term care participants, this might be heart failure exacerbations or COPD exacerbations or other um, management of chronic care conditions that, that may have been suboptimal and could have led to the hospitalization. While it's not a perfect metric, it, it gives facilities some incentive to take sicker patients who might be at risk for hospitalization and really you know, look more closely at which hospitalizations they, they truly could have had some impact in avoiding. It struck me that from a rehabilitation perspective, the potentially avoidable hospitalizations are the one where we might have a real impact as compared to all cause. Is that a fair assumption or am I off base there? Yeah, I, I think it's a fair assumption. I mean, it certainly hasn't been rigorously tested, but there are research articles out there that suggest um, function has an outsized role in, um, in people at risk for potentially avoidable hospitalizations. Um, there's, there's research that suggests that the ADL impairment in particular is a bigger risk factor for potentially avoidable hospitalizations than for all cause. And, and there's a couple of different reasons. I think there's access to primary care, um, and I think people kind of forget that mobility is a big part of accessing the doctor, is being able to get into a car and drive to the car. So, so patients that are more functionally limited tend to ration their health care based on more severe needs. So avoidable conditions like you know, swelling in the legs from congestive heart failure, more difficulty breathing from COPD that um, might not necessarily trigger a doctor's visit um, for somebody who knows it's going to take a lot of effort to get there. Um, so I think that's a really interesting way to think about it is there's research to suggest access to health care is affected by function. And even the act of receiving a good physical examination at the doctor's office is limited by poor physical function, getting up on a table, um, the slow movement and being able to get in and out of an office in a short amount of time. And physical function plays a role in all of those things. It was also interesting to me, Jason, when you looked at and compared the dual eligible clients, Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries, to just the Medicare-only beneficiaries and looked at these potentially avoidable hospitalization, you saw that the rate is more than double in the dual-eligible clients. Is that correct? And if so, why do you think that was the case? Yeah, so there's, there's a fair amount of research that suggests um, that dual-eligible beneficiaries use more health care than Medicare-only beneficiaries compared to their population size. And when you look at potentially avoidable hospitalizations, I think those 
um, care access barriers become more magnified for dual eligible beneficiaries, um, the social determinants of health factors that some of which we can you know look at and adjust for, like socioeconomic status and um, you know, neighborhood issues um, that really do affect access to health care. And my hypothesis would be that um, the dual eligible Medicaid Medicare beneficiaries that have both high disability and significant socioeconomic um, depression, I think that really does limit access to and um, frequency of use of health care, which probably uh, plays a role in um, avoidable hospitalizations. Makes sense. You focused um, your measure of function on the short physical performance battery, or the SPPB. Why that choice in this study? Yeah, that's a good question, and I think we can walk back to how we developed this data set to begin with, and it was really came from an effort of this particular group of facilities wanting to do a better job assessing risk for falls. That's how this kind of started, and really wanted to find a tool that they could use across their their population, which has a wide variety from generally primary wheelchair users all the way up into ambulatory people in the community. And I think the SPPB really allows accurate measurements of function across the spectrum of, of um, impairment and, and has a meaningful zero. So, so people who um, really are unable to be ambulatory um, and maybe couldn't participate in a gate speed or, or timed up and go test can still get a meaningful score. And on the other end, very few of our participants scored 12. So I think the yeah. lack of floor and ceiling effects really helped drive that decision as well. Well, that makes sense. It seems like it was a good fit for your population. In your uh, multivariate analyses, if I read it correctly, you examined time to hospitalization during the year after the assessment with the SPPB. Why, why the focus on time? Yeah, so for a couple of reasons. Um, one, that this population has a high risk of events like um, being um, dis disenrolling from the program or, or having, uh, they also have a high mortality rate, you know, because they are relatively sick um, and, and socially vulnerable older adults. And not all of them experience the same amount of follow-up time. So from their SPPB assessment, some um, were only able to be followed for six months, some for the full 12. And using a time-to-event model allows us to use the full complement of the data we had available and really avoid the bias that comes with, with dropouts for, for death or disenrollment, which often disproportionately affect your most disabled populations. So you were able to retain a greater proportion of your cohort in your analysis. Right. You had several covariates, Jason, in your regression models. Uh, which ones did you focus on and why those? So having only one measured variable in short physical performance battery and then using the rest of the variables from claims data, you know, obviously we're a little bit limited in which variables we had. I think there's many other good choices that uh, had we been able to go in and assess other pieces, we would have, we would have included more. Um, but these variables that we included, so comorbidity uh, burden from their uh, standardized Medicare metric that they, uh, the hierarchical condition codes, really helped us get an idea of the, the overall burden of chronic disease for the patient, and, and which does impact function. And we also looked at other variables that are, that are common, um, age and, and gender, uh, to make sure there wasn't any biases for, 
for those variables that are often common in, in measures of function. One of the variables that was more unique was this idea of um, the original entitlement reason for Medicare, which we were able to look at in some of the population. I think for the most part, we included variables that we thought were directly related to function and may confound the results and, and really to try to tease out what the independent effect of function was beyond the effect of many of the chronic conditions and other medical complexity this population had. Sure. And then you were, of course, limited by what was available in your data set. Right. And and for, for that, you know, I think that's a common um, problem with using claims data, um, and it is one limitation of, of the study, uh, but certainly an important step to, you know, generate hypotheses for, for other larger studies that people may conduct in the future. Well, moving on to your results, you report that 16% of your cohort experienced the hospitalization in the year following the index the functional assessment, and of those, 41% were considered potentially avoidable. Were you surprised by the proportion of hospitalizations that were potentially avoidable? It strikes me as a reader as quite high. Did yeah, you think so I was, or, or not? I think I was struck by how high they were, too, and, and we really didn't have a, a, a metric that we thought or a number that we thought was going to be, you know, reasonable. We hadn't really ever looked at this in this population, and especially related to to rehabilitation or, or functional outcomes, but we were surprised. And But when we started looking through the list of conditions that, that were included, you know, um, issues related to falls and trauma, issues related to you know, heart conditions like heart failure, exacerbations, like when we started to break down the list and, and see really what was what was included there, we, we became a little less surprised. And, but also heartened by the fact that there is an opportunity here potentially to have an influence on reducing some hospitalizations or you know, really proving the outcome for these patients who are at risk. Yeah, that's really the flip side. That's the good side of what you found because the larger the proportion that are potentially avoidable, that opens up real possibilities for rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about earlier, it was interesting to me when you limited the outcome in your analysis to only the potentially avoidable hospitalization, the relationship between low function and higher hospitalization risk, in fact, strengthened. Was that your hypothesis and what you expected to see? Yeah. Um it, we really, when we started to look at this relationship, we had thought from some of the prior literature um, that was involved in just the general Medicare population that that might be the case. But we we didn't really know what to expect because this population in general had such high levels of, of ADL disability and, and chronic conditions at, at baseline. So we really weren't sure how much independent effect we thought the physical performance would have on hospitalization risk. And, and looking at the, um, the strong relationships and the really high um, hazard ratios really kind of clued us in that there is an opportunity that um, functional status and, and maximizing functional status may be, you know, more than just a rehab goal for these patients. It might be a really a, a facility target for quality improvement or other efforts. And, I think that number really helped bring it back to our to our community partner 
and say that there was opportunities to really involve rehab more in, in evaluation, assessment, and uh, management of these patients. Sure, and from a policy perspective and a cost perspective, if you actually did run those numbers, there could be a, a considerable cost savings by reducing the risk of potentially avoidable hospitalization. Correct. Staying with the potentially avoidable hospitalizations for the next question, in your models, you found that having more comorbidities was independently associated with risk, which makes sense. And then you also found that men were uh, more at risk for potentially avoidable hospitalizations. That finding surprised me. What do you make of that? The comorbidities seems understandable from what we know about complex profiles of comorbidities. But why the male gender finding? Yeah, that was surprising to us as well, and we didn't have a, a real set hypothesis about that. So if I, I, I will offer one, but it will be conjecture at this point. But my experience clinically and, and reading some other literature is it's not uncommon for males to be at higher risk for hospitalizations in, in some cases. And it may be, you know, a, a cultural thing where men are a little bit more stubborn or wait to go to the doctor, especially in this generation. Um, and maybe um, conditions that could have been addressed were not treated or not really even brought to a, a physician's attention in, in the amount of time it would take to, to make meaningful differences. So as far as the male gender, that's as far as our, our thinking process went. It definitely needs some more study uh, for people that have different data sets to see if that's been consistent. Sure. I think the less surprising finding was about the comorbidities. Um, I think we're almost universally across studies of hospitalization, higher comorbidity burden certainly increases the risk. I think what was interesting about this study is we were really able to take a look at that high number of comorbidities in a, in a robust way and really tease out the effect of comorbidity from the effect of physical function. Um, it's often thought that people have low function just because they have higher numbers of comorbidities, and our research suggests that those things might act differently on hospitalization risk and, and may have um, different targets for intervention. I do think people frequently make the assumption that um, it's the comorbidity that drives it. And, and I was also interested to see that uh, both were independently associated. Well, my last question, Jason, what do you see as the take-home, the key take-home message or messages for our audience to be thinking about with your work? Yeah, I think those are, that's a great question. I think that's a two-pronged answer. There's, there's clinical implications for physical therapists, and I think there are broader policy implications as well. Um, as far as clinical implications, I look at this population and see a, a capitated model that's, you know, Medicaid spending is increasing 15 or more percent each year on funding, um, and it's been bolstered by recent um, changes in uh, the rules that allow for-profit companies to own PACE programs. So there's obviously an interest in growing these models from a clinical standpoint and increasing the number of patients that are taking advantage of these services. So PTs are very likely to, to have experience with this population or other very similar populations um, in Medicaid, which are the home and community-based waiver services. Um, those, those patients also receive a, a similar type of community-based long-term care under a different payment model. So combining those populations together, I think there's a lot of 
opportunity for PT to see those people and, and really um, be more involved in not just like treating patients with exercise, but involved in the screening um, and, and really in the primary care process of identifying patients that may be at high risk for hospitalization and, and getting them into the appropriate interventions, which, which may include rehab, it may include home modifications, or it really may include more of a screening and supportive role for PT for patients who may be towards the end of life. But I think there's a role for PT um, for patients who either are likely to respond to rehab or are unlikely to respond to rehab um, using our, our wide skill set. So I think those are the clinical implications. As far as policy goes, I think, you know, there's, I think you alluded to this earlier, there's a cost-effectiveness question here. And, you know, the cost of physical therapy relative to the cost of a hospitalization is very favorable. So I think really doing a job to um, identify which patients are likely to respond well to rehab and understanding um, who responds functionally and if that functional improvement um, is related to lower risk of hospitalization. So from a policy standpoint, it could really support the role of PT in these types of programs and perhaps um, spur some additional investment by, by PACE programs or um, federal government programs to, to really focus on function. Well, I, I couldn't agree more, and that's why I was particularly pleased that we were able to publish uh, your work. And I want to thank you for submitting it to PTJ, and I want to encourage our listeners to take a look at it in the journal because I think you'll enjoy reading it. And I want to thank you, Jason, for taking the time to talk about your work with me today. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. And I really do, at the, at the end, you want to acknowledge some of our um, contributors. You know, our, our lab at the University of Colorado had a lot of outside influence on helping steer this work. And I had a, a number of co-authors who were either long-term care physicians or, or hospitalist physicians who really helped shape the scope of the work. And our community partner, Innovage, in, in Denver, Colorado, really has... You know, their, their leadership has fully embraced the value of PT and, and done a nice job really allowing us to get into this facility. And I think it's been a very mutually beneficial relationship that could be emulated in, in other community academic partnerships if, if people are interested in moving this work forward.